0: When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem They made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem By another way what an awesome story what an incredible story here we have in the gospel accounts of that very first advent written by Matthew and Luke this incredible narrative filled with wonder and drama and intrigue and beauty it's no wonder that people all over the world of all nationalities and backgrounds for 2,000 years have found it compelling. A story that year after year inspires worship and celebration and family get-togethers and acts of service, works of art, and so much more. But friends, what exactly is it about this story that so inspires us? What's so special about Christmas? That's the question I want us to consider together this Christmas Eve. You know, in one sense, for us to fully answer that question, we need a lot more than just the nativity narratives I read for you today. We need to know the whole story, the the big story, the, the story found throughout Scripture from beginning to end of God's incredible unfolding plan of salvation for the world. Now, friends, obviously, we don't have time today for that journey through God's big story. But fortunately for us, God has given us a summary of the big story. And that summary is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 16. That famous verse, John 3, 16. I want us to read this verse this evening and then comment on how we see God's big story in this particular passage. The Apostle John says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What a great, what a great verse. The great Protestant reformer Martin Luther once described this verse as the heart of the Bible, the gospel in miniature. And here in this short yet profound verse, we find the answer to the question, what's so special about Christmas? John highlights for us four truths here in this short, simple verse. Four truths that answer the question, what's so special about Christmas? The first thing that we discover here in this verse from the Apostle John is that Christmas is about a God so loving For God so loved the world. Now friends, if you were to answer the question, what is God like? What would you say? How would you answer that question? Fortunately for us this evening, we don't need to guess or even use our imaginations to answer that question because God himself has told us in scripture what he is like. In 1 John chapter 4 verses 7 and 8 we read this from the apostle John. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is what? God is love. What is God like? God is love. Now now the word love there that the Apostle John uses is a Greek word, it's agape, agape love And, and this is the highest of all forms of love. Agape love is the love that we see repeatedly used of God throughout scripture, it's a selfless love, a sacrificial love, a serving love and God says that he is this agape love. The Apostle Paul, in the letter to the, to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes to the church in Corinth describing this kind of agape love that God is. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Friends, what is God like? God is like this. God is perfect love. God is agape love. Now the question we need to ask is how do we really know though? How do we really know that God is like this, that he's this fullness of God love? Well, the proof, friends, is that God has demonstrated it to us. You know, if you were to ask my kids, Caleb and Addie, this evening, you know, Caleb, Addie, how do you know your dad loves you? You know, I bet they would say a couple things. I bet they would say, first and foremost, well, you know, number one, he tells us he loves us every day. But then they would probably tell you, but more than that, he does things for us. He, he, he does things with us. He, he, he goes out and he hits tennis balls with me for hundreds of hours and we go out to the Chinese buffet together and we work on the car together and, and, and they would share these acts of things that I do to show them just how much I love them. And friends, in the very same way, with God, we know that God is love not just because the words of Scripture tell us That he is love, but because God has powerfully demonstrated his love to us. Now before we look at the how of God's love, we first need to look at the why, the why behind God's love. And here, the apostle John in John 3.16 tells us that Christmas is about, number two, a world so in need, for God so loved the world. That word world in the Greek is an important word for this verse because the word world in the Greek cosmos can refer to the created world, the people of the world, but more often than not throughout Scripture, the word world refers to this fallen world system that we live in. A world that exists in systemic opposition to God. In fact, we find this word 186 times throughout the New Testament, and every time the word world is used in the New Testament, it is used in connection with sin and its consequences. Isn't that interesting? What is sin? Sin is simply rebellion against God. We use that word sin and it has all these, you know, kind of theological connotations to it, but, but in its simplest sense, sin is simply rebelling against our creator, choosing to do life our way instead of God's way. And the Bible tells us that because of our sin, this world is plagued with division and disease and death. Sin caused all of that. How did this take place? Well, the Apostle Paul in Romans five twelve, speaking back to the very creation of the world, the foundation of creation, Adam and Eve, our first parents in Genesis chapter 3, the Apostle Paul tells us what went wrong after God created this perfect world. Paul says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Again, sin is rebellion against God. And God, in the beginning, created a perfect world that he gave to humanity. But he charged Adam and Eve with this important decision. Will you choose to do life my way or your way? And Adam and Eve chose poorly. And their choice, Paul tells us, ushered in the reality of sin into our world, bringing about the division that we see throughout creation, the disease that we see, the death that we see. It was all the act of choosing against God. Paul says that as a result of this first choice, sin has spread throughout all of creation to the extent that every single one of us here this evening is born into this world infected with a spiritual disease, sin. We're all born with a sin nature. Paul says in Romans 3, no one is righteous, no, not one. For all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short of God's righteous, holy, perfect standards. All of us. We've all rebelled. And the serious consequence of this rebellion, Paul tells us in Romans 6.23, is that the wages or the payment for our sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And here Paul is talking about both physical death but also spiritual death. Spiritual death, which is eternal separation from God. Now, why? Why does sin lead to death, both physically and spiritually? Well, friends, the apostle John tells us in John 1, 4 that God is the source of life. In him, the creator was life, and that life was the light of men. Now friends, think about this. If God is the source of life, to unplug yourself from the source of life is to be without life. It's just like my experience this last week with our Christmas tree. I came home one afternoon and our Christmas tree lights were off. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, you know, and I I start, you know, hunting through the wires. I'm trying to find the bulb that is loose, you know, I I can't figure out, you know, is there a bad bulb in here? So I start yelling at Siri, hey Siri, turn the Christmas tree lights on. And then I remember, oh, it's not Siri, it's Google, Google, hey Google, turn the Christmas lights on. And I'm getting more and more frustrated. And then I think to myself, you know what, I'm going to look down here below the tree. And I bent down and sure enough, the Christmas tree lights had been unplugged from the wall. They'd been unplugged from their source of power. And friends, it's the same way with you and I as creatures created by our Heavenly Father, created by God, the source of life. If we unplug ourselves from the source of life, we're never going to experience real life in all of its fullness. And that's what we do each and every time we rebel against God. And our rebellion, our sin, the Bible tells us, leads to death. It's serious. You might think to yourself, well, Jason, you know, I I don't really consider myself to be that bad of a person. How have I rebelled against God? Well, the apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, he highlights four ways that all of us rebel in sin against God. How have we rebelled against God? We suppress the truth. God tells us one thing. God's given us his will for our lives. But we say, no, 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 no. And we kind of push it back and we suppress it. Paul then tells us we exchange the worship of God for idols. And he's not talking about, you know, little gold shrines here. He's talking about any false god that we set up in our life that we worship over against our creator. He's talking about things like money and sex and popularity and body image and sports, right? All of these things that we elevate to this place of Godhood in our lives and we worship these things and we pursue these things and we seek these things when our creator God should be number one. And then Paul tells us not only do we create these idols in our lives, but we trade God's truths for lies. God says this about sex, but the world says this. I'm gonna go this way. God says this about marriage, but I'm going to go the way the world says about marriage. God says this about life. No, no, no. I'm going to go what the world says about life, right? And so we exchange God's truth for lies. And then Paul tells us we even go so far as celebrating others and their rebellion. And if you don't think that's true, all you got to do is watch the Grammys or the Academy Awards this next year. And you'll see all kinds of examples of the world celebrating people as they rebel against God and his perfect standards for our lives. We're all guilty of this, friends. We all do these things. And as we understand the reality of our rebellion, we can begin to fully appreciate God's demonstration of love for us. How did God love us? Paul says in Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that amazing? This leads me to point number three from John's great verse, John three sixteen. We see that Christmas is about a gift so astounding. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. A gift so astounding that, that term he gave here in the Greek, ditto me, it means to give sacrificially. It means to endure loss. In other words, God gave a costly gift. It was a sacrificial gift. What was so costly about this gift God gave us on that first Christmas? Well, God gave his only monogenes his only, his unique, his one-of-a-kind son. This is what God gave the world on that first Christmas. God so loved the world that he gave his one-of-a-kind, only, unique son, Jesus Christ. What was so unique about Jesus Christ? Jesus was unique, number one, in his nature. He was unique in that he was God in flesh. John 1.14 says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word there in the Greek, the logos, referred to the life-empowering force of the universe, the creator and sustainer of all things. God, in his holiness, came into the world, taking on a human nature, becoming flesh to reveal himself to us. Now, why did God become flesh? Why did he take on a human nature? He did this because, secondly, of Jesus' unique mission. Remember, what did the angel tell Joseph when the angel appeared to Joseph and Matthew and told him that Mary was going to conceive and give birth to a son? The angel said to Joseph, do not fear Joseph because the baby conceived is from the Lord and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he shall save his people from their sins. The word Jesus is a form of the Hebrew Yeshua, which means God's helper. Jesus is God's helper. He's our helper from God to save us, to deliver us from our sins. And so we see this unique son of God, unique in nature, unique in mission. Jesus came to be the perfect substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. He came to save us from our rebellion and its consequences. He came to be God's sacrifice of atonement, making us one with our creator. This is why John the Baptist, when Jesus comes on, Paul describes Jesus like this. For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Now, what does that mean? A few years back, I had the privilege of traveling down to New Zealand, I was doing some speaking there with my father, and New Zealand's an interesting country. Do you know New Zealand has a population of 5 million people, but there are 25 million sheep throughout the country of New Zealand? I mean, there's sheep everywhere. It's crazy. But while we were there in New Zealand, we had the opportunity to spend a few days on a sheep ranch with with some people who were hosting us. They were farmers and sheep ranchers. And they shared this incredible story with us that that really resonated with me when I think about God's gift to us at Christmas. They talked about how sometimes in the herd of sheep, a a mother ewe will die while giving birth to a lamb, and and a little lamb will end up being orphaned. And then somewhere else in the herd at the same time, a, a a, a, a mother will give birth to a dead lamb, a stillborn. And so what the sheep ranchers will do is they'll try to bring this little little orphan lamb to the mother who lost her baby so that that mother can feed and nurse and suckle this little orphan lamb. But here's the problem. That mother, you, she can smell that that's not her baby. And she'll always kick it away and will not allow it to come into her presence. But the ranchers there, they discovered something really incredible. They discovered that if they take that dead, stillborn lamb And if they cut that lamb open and take its blood and smear its blood on the coat of that orphaned lamb who lost its mother, that they then bring that orphaned lamb to the mother and she smells the blood that covers that lamb and she smells that blood and she says, that is my baby. And she will then always allow it to come to nurse and feed. And I thought to myself, what an awesome illustration of what God's done for us in Jesus Christ. You see, because of God's holiness, we can never enter into his perfect presence because all of us have rebelled against him. We're all sinners. But God, in his great love for us, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be the perfect substitute, the perfect sacrifice for our sins, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And when Jesus went to the cross, he did so as the substitutionary Lamb of God who died for our sins. And when we put our faith and trust in him, God no longer sees our sin, but he sees the blood of Jesus that covers us. And he'll always then welcome us into his holy presence because of our trust in Jesus. And this is why, fourthly this evening, that great verse, John three sixteen, tells us that Christmas is about a choice so vital. A choice so vital. John says that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Friends, this is the choice. Eternal life through Jesus or eternal separation from God, the one who is the source of life. The apostle Paul describes this choice like this in Romans 10. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, that means to be made right with God, And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Friends, that's the choice that God offers each and every one of us. Will we put our trust in Jesus? we call on the name of the Lord for our salvation. This past week, I came across an interesting article. It was written by a Christian archaeologist, and he was talking about the, the nativity story from, a, from an archaeological standpoint. And he was describing in the nativity story how 2,000 years ago, when, Jesus was brought to the, when Mary came to the stable to give birth, that it was probably a, a cave hewn out of the rock that, that, that was this stable that Jesus was born in. And, and he talked about how the manger, you know, we had this vision of these mangers of being these, you know, these wooden vessels that, that uh, held the baby Jesus. Mangers are these feeding troughs that feed the animals. But, but this archaeologist said, no, 2,000 years ago, that, that manger was probably hewn out of the rock. It was probably carved out of the rock and, and made this little niche in the rock. And that was the manger in which baby Jesus was placed. A hard, dirty, defiled rock that held the Son of God. And you know, friends, I was thinking about that this week and the reality that God has carved a niche into each of our hearts as well. Just like that manger that held the baby Jesus in that first stable Christmas, Christmas Eve 2,000 years ago. God has carved a manger into each of our hearts. In Ecclesiastes chapter 311, the Bible tells us that God has put eternity in the hearts of men. And what this means, friends, is just like the manger of the nativity, God has carved a space in our hearts that only Jesus can fill. It's a space reserved for Jesus. And if we'll let him, friends, Jesus will come, and he'll fill your heart and dirty and defiled heart with his perfect love and all the blessings of Christmas earlier we had the Kazi family light the, uh, light the Advent candles for us we've been celebrating this Advent season and these Advent candles which represent the blessings of Christmas the blessings of hope and peace and joy and love these candles represent the blessings that Christmas is all about the blessings that Christ brings into our lives The blessings first realized 2,000 years ago in a little baby lying in a manger. Friends, I want to encourage you this evening, you too can know these blessings. Hope, peace, joy, love, they can all be yours. But you need to open the manger of your heart to Jesus. Will you let him in? You might have noticed there's still one candle to be lit here tonight. That center candle. The center candle is called the Christ candle. We light it on Christmas to announce the arrival of Jesus Christ. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 9 2, Isaiah shared these words 700 years before the arrival of Jesus. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Friends, Jesus Christ is the light of the world. John 1.9 says he is the true light which gives light to everyone. And I want to encourage you this evening, if you haven't yet, I pray that you'll invite Jesus Christ into your heart this Christmas. Invite him in and let him illuminate your life with the hope and peace and joy and love that's only found in a personal relationship with him. God's gift to us our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your great faithfulness to us. And we thank you that you so loved this world that you gave your one and only unique son to save us from our sins. And God, I pray that all who are here tonight might hear this offer this gift of new life in you, this gift of salvation, forgiveness, life and life eternal, and that they might open their hearts to you, that they might receive that gift and invite you in, and in doing so that they too might experience the hope and joy and peace and love that is ours at Christmas. And not just Christmas, but each and every day of the year because of your presence in our lives. Jesus, we thank you for this incredible gift. And we praise you and we declare that you are Lord of lords and King of kings, worthy of our praise. Amen.